So this morning we are continuing on with actually beginning a new uh, sort of sub-series in this book of Peter as we've been studying this letter that Peter wrote to the church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, wrote it 2,000 years ago and was encouraging uh, the church there. Uh, We're beginning with this series over the next three weeks and looking specifically at Peter's call to these churches to live for God. And especially today as we're going to be diving into this text, to live God and to keep doing good even despite the trouble, despite the trouble that you face. And it's really, this is like an instruction manual for how do we live in a culture that's not so excited about Christianity. And maybe is even a little bit antagonistic toward it. So this is good for us. This is, I was thinking about it this week, how scripture is still so relevant to our lives, so important for us. But even through these words that Peter wrote to a church 2,000 years ago, the Spirit of God continues to speak to us today. And I've been thinking about this too. Like this, this passage, as I've been studying this week, has got me asking some questions about how do we live in a culture uh, to varying degrees, all the way from some who think it's great to be a Christian, they're just not in for it, all the way to people who think that Christians are horrible people just for the fact that they are Christian. How do we do this? How do we live in a, in a community or in a culture that some look at us with ambivalence and some of us look at us, look at us with downright contempt? For example, I used to think about this, but I don't usually lead with a fact. I don't usually say, introduce myself, say, hi, I'm Jason. I'm the pastor of the Balfour Covenant Church. I don't usually lead with that. I often talk about Jason. You know, hi, I'm Jason. How are you? Get to know people. And then I look for an opportunity at some point to say, oh yeah, I'm the pastor of the Balfour Church after they've got a chance to know me a bit. It's interesting, Tracy's not, she's teaching the kids right now, but she said when she first moved here, she would say, you know, oh yeah, we just moved here, my husband's the pastor of the church, and she could see people. She could actually watch people recoil and change, like the countenance of their face would change when they learned that she was uh, the pastor's wife. And so how do we live in a culture like that? It's interesting because generations ago, pastors were honored people in a society. They are honored people in a culture. And there's still some places like that. I'm still grateful that our community asked me to go and to lead the Remembrance Day service in Proctor. Uh, and occasionally, like a, a few years ago, at the, um, uh, the ferry landing, they asked me to pray for, for the rededication of the, of the ferry landing. There's a, still a few times. But I think most people today, when I say I'm a pastor, probably one of the, the most common questions I get is, so what do you do? <laughs> you know what? I... I get it on Sunday, you've got some responsibilities, but kind of what do you do? Like, is there any value to you being a pastor? And it's interesting because the same is for Christians too, for the rest of you. You know, even just a generation ago, it um, it was looked up to to be a Christian. You know, there were people who were parts of churches, not because they were Christian, just because they wanted to be associated with Christians. There were people who were part of churches mainly because of the, the way or the impression it gave people around them for their business or for the things that they were doing for their political career. Uh, that's not the same anymore. Actually, it seems almost like for people to, to publicly know you're a Christian in our culture, at least here in the Kootenays, is almost more of a liability than it is an asset. Uh, and so... I know some of you maybe are asking to, you know, um, today we want people to know us before we drop the bomb and say, you know, oh yeah, I'm a Christian or I, I am a part of a church. Not only that, but we're starting to, maybe we're wondering too, is how do we respond when people mistreat us? How do we as Christians respond to that? How do we respond in the church uh, when our brothers and sisters say or do things that insult us? 
Or how do we do this in a community, in the world around us where um, it's definitely more complicated? I know some of you have felt this too. And maybe some of you this morning as we've started talking, already you're starting to ask, you know, how, how do we do this? How do I navigate different views about Jesus? Some who honor him, some who think that he was just a myth. How do we live in a culture like this? Maybe some of you are asking, you know, Jason, it's interesting you said about church and insults. How do we treat each other as a church? Not only in the way that cultivates the health of this church, but reflects God's goodness to the people around us, the people who are watching. And how do we treat people in our community who harass us for our faith? So there's a couple good questions there, and I wanted to jump right into the text this morning. Now, if you want to, you can open up your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It's also in your bulletin as well. Um, in your bulletin here, it's just the passage is right here for you if you want to take a look at that. <clears throat> just wanted to remind you that there's a whole blank sheet on the side if you want to take notes, things that are important or follow along. It's always helpful to stay engaged uh, to work through the passage. So let me read this. It says, so Peter says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. So he's speaking to the church now. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. So let's just work through this real uh, thoroughly here. First one he says is, uh, live in harmony with one another. And actually the Greek word is actually have the same mind. Okay, uh, so he's saying be like-minded. He's not saying be hive-minded. I mean, if you catch the distinction there, he's not saying you all have to think exactly the same, but he's saying have the same goal, the same large goal of one growing in our faith in Jesus together and also cultivating God's kingdom here among us and in our community. It's not saying we have to think the same, but he's saying have the same goal, okay? Have the same uh, mindset. Then he says this, he says, be sympathetic. And actually, um, this is, uh, the Greek behind this is actually, literally, it's suffer with. Suffer with one another. Join each other. When one of us is struggling, resist the temptation to just go with platitudes. So when you have a brother or sister in the church that is really struggling, resist the temptation to just say, well, bless you, I'm sure God will do something uh, and help you. Or, oh, I see you're really struggling, read your Bible more. Not bad advice, just sometimes it feels like a platitude. So resist that temptation and actually enter into the suffering. To listen, to sit down and listen, to care, to genuinely care for each other. And then he says this, he says, love as brothers. And this is actually um, uh, Philadelphia, or Philadelphia, we have the city named after that, brotherly love. But also, too, I think what he's saying here is love each other like family. Like brothers would love each other. Like brothers in a good relationship would love each other. Love each other like family. Not like my sons do. I know they love each other, but they fight all the time. But like a good adult siblings, <laughs> love each other well. And it's interesting because in the first century, love um, was more about a choice um, more about a commitment to one another, less about a feeling, which is different. In our culture, love is mostly associated with a feeling. I sure feel warm and fuzzy about this person. That must be love. And that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's actually saying, care for one another like family. And the thing that's different for us, we live in a very different time. For us, family um, 
responsibility to family is very different now. Um, and it's to varying degrees. Some of us uh, feel um, lots of connection with our siblings or our parents or our aunts and uncles or our grandparents, and we, have, we feel like we have a large family. But it's not real common anymore. It seems like actually more common now is just the nuclear family and sometimes even just the individual within a family. There are some families where they, they don't interact with their, their parents um, or parents don't interact with their kids um, and their family circle is very small. That wasn't the way it was in the first century. Your family was one of your most, it was the most important social group that you had. And so it was very important that you loved your family, that you were there for your family, that your family could depend on you. That was critical. Not only because you would face, if you didn't do it, say, for example, if you were an ancient, a first century family and you had a child that you asked for help and they didn't come help you, not only would they face uh, shame in your family, but they would face shame in the society around them. If, if your friends and neighbors knew that your child didn't come help you, then they would look down on your child and maybe even down on you. So family connection was extremely strong and definitely reinforced by the culture around them. So loving like a family was a big deal. And so uh, Peter is saying to the group right now, he's saying, love each other like a family with this love of brothers that brothers should have for one another. Love each other like this. And then he says, be compassionate. <coughs> and the, the sense here is actually, the word, the, the Greek behind it is actually usplankna, which is uh, interesting because actually it's two parts. Two parts, it's actually good and guts. Good guts, <laughs> which is in the Greek was saying like a tender way of saying, have this deep-rooted, tender-hearted love for each other. Be compassionate for each other. And this last one here, he says, be humble. Now this one is pretty interesting because humility, we, we've had 2,000 years to get used to this teaching of Jesus and here Peter encouraging the church. We've had 2,000 years to get used to that. But in the ancient world, uh, the, the Greek word is typenos, but we just say humility. Humility was actually viewed as a weakness, not a virtue. So actually if you were humble, it's not because you chose it as a high moral character, it's because you were so weak that you couldn't actually do anything about it anyways. So humility was looked more at like humiliated or weak and unable to assert themselves. In the first, uh, in the first century in Greco-Roman culture, humility was not a positive virtue. And yet here, Peter is encouraging the church to treat each other this way. And now we've looked back on it 2,000 years later and we can see just how smart Jesus actually really is. That humility is a key ingredient to a healthy community. Humility with one another to say, you know, I think this is the best thing that we should do or I'm convinced it is, but I'm willing to listen to you. I might be wrong. That sort of humility. Or to say, you know, I thought I knew the right thing to do and I offended you. Please forgive me. That sort of humility holds a community together, holds a church together. And Peter knows this, and so he's encouraging these churches to humility. Because one, it leads to peace with among us. It leads to unity. It holds us together that we actually accomplish God's good plan of cultivating his kingdom here if we will be humble with one another. Not only that, but this is like the most accurate way to follow Jesus. Jesus is the picture of humility. Even Paul 
one of Jesus' other famous followers, many of you know him, wrote the book Philippians. And there he teaches the church in Philippi. He says, <clears throat> be humble with one another, just as Christ was humble. Because he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave himself up and became nothing, became a slave. Then we have Jesus who is this, this amazing example of God who humbled himself to become human and then humbled himself to become a servant to all of humanity dying on a cross to save us. This is the God we serve. This is our example of, human, of humility. So, so humility is a big one for us as well. So all these, these things he holds together, Peter is saying, church, I want you to do this. I want you to treat each other this way. And then he says this. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now, <clears throat> in, in Peter's time, and in Jesus' time for that matter, uh, this was how you dealt with insults. If someone insults you, you lost honor. You were shamed. And the only way to get your honor back was to not only return the insult, but to insult them worse, to make sure that they never did it again. That was how you gained honor, was by retaliating. Not just equal retaliation, but even more. It was escalation. That was how you kept honor. Now we might think like, well, you know, honor's important. You know, that, that's, I, I can see, I guess, but why such a big deal on honor? We see in the ancient world, they didn't have credit ratings. They had reputations. And your honor was directly tied to your reputation. And if you had no honor, you had a bad reputation, and it was especially difficult for your family to make it in society. So, like in our society, uh, you can do a lot with a credit rating. Even if you're a pretty despicable person, if you've got a credit rating, you can get money, you can do commerce, all that stuff. In the ancient world, it was different. It was dependent on the honor that you had. And not, an honor wasn't always given because you were a good person. It was because you were best at taking honor from others, at being more powerful than others. So, uh, in, honor, in honor and shame society, if someone insulted you, you had to not just return equal, you actually had to retaliate plus, okay? So you'd never lose face. And then, um, and then Peter says, do not repay evil for evil. And it kind of gives us, and, and this actually, this, this short little clip here gives us a little example or maybe an insight into what the sort of uh, problems that the church was facing. It says, do not repay evil for evil, which is kind of general, but the next part is insult with insult. And so we get a sense here that probably the church in Asia Minor was facing insults because they wouldn't go along with a culture around them. The, the people around them, the non-Christians, were insulting them. And actually this teaching from Peter goes right back to Jesus. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 to 28, Jesus says, this, he says, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, a few things we can draw from, them, from this. First of all, is that Peter is a faithful disciple. He's faithfully taking what Jesus taught him and teaching it to these churches of Asia Minor, teaching them to love those who insult them. The other thing that's pretty powerful is as you look at this too, uh, is that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. And this is like we've already talked about love. This is not feel warm, fuzzy feelings for your enemies. That's not what he's saying here. That would be impossible. But he is saying, love them by the way you treat them. Show it in action. Even if you don't feel it, love them with action. Choose to do loving things for them, especially your enemies. 
So he says, love your enemies. And he thinks about this, about um, that it's not just something that we do, it's actually, sorry, it's not something that we feel, it's something that we do. And that's actually why I suggested to Tracy that she read the story of the Good Samaritan with our kids this morning. The Good Samaritan story is a great example of how we love our enemies. Now, it's harder for us to totally grasp it because we've heard that story so many times. I mean, Good Samaritan, like there's, there's like, even outside the church, Good Sam has all these connotations, this whole sort of entity of itself. But in the ancient world, Samaritans and Jews, they were enemies. Tracy alluded to it when she was teaching our kids. They did not like each other. Like an example of this is when Jesus goes to Samaria and he's drawing water from the well. And the woman says, and he says, you know, would you draw me something to drink? And she says, but sir, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? We hate each other. Don't you remember? And so Jesus, he tells the story of a good Samaritan who sees a Jewish man who's been assaulted, beat up, laying on the side of the road, left for dead. And all of his Jewish friends, because they didn't want to become unclean, walk, actually step to the other side of the road to avoid getting dirty and walk right by him. And yet the Samaritan, the enemy, stops and loves him. Not like feels warm, fuzzy feelings for him, but I mean actively, by his actions, loves the Samaritan man cares for his wounds, puts him in a hotel, tells the hotel owner, everything, you know, just charge it to me. Take care of him, whatever he needs, just charge it to me, I'll pay for it. That's the sort of love that Jesus is talking about here. This is the sort of way that we love our enemies. And he says this, he says, not only that you do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but actually says, but repay with a blessing to bless them. If this is not miraculous, supernatural behavior that requires more than just our own determination, I don't know what is. This is something that requires the Holy Spirit in us to repay insult with blessing. That requires a transformed heart. That is one of the the clearest signs that Jesus is at work in someone when they can return an insult with a blessing. Now, the blessing here is one, to speak good of someone, that's the first sense of it, is to be a blessing. So um, to speak good of them. Because the temptation, right, when somebody insults us, is to talk to everybody but that person about how they've insulted us. Talk with our friends and people in the church and people that we have coffee with about how insulted we are. That's our tendency. We're really tempted to do that. And actually, Peter calls us to something better. To not complain, to not... Uh, go behind people's back, but actually to bless them, to speak good of them, to speak good of them. And then the second part of this, and I think this is actually more what Peter means, is to ask for God's favor in their life, to speak a blessing over them. Lord God, please bless this person. Even though they've insulted me, even though they have tried to hurt me, Lord, please bless them. I pray that they would realize who you are, that you would convict them, and that their heart would change. That's what Peter is calling us to. Okay. So he's saying, don't, don't re, um, respond with an insult. Don't get caught up in this downward spiral of, of tit for tat. They did this, so I got them back. But not only that, not only because it's bad for us, like it leads to this just ugly place for us, but also because when we respond with blessing, we actually reveal Jesus. We show people what it means. We show people the difference 
of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because when someone insults us in the world around us, everybody expects for retaliation. That's the, that's the common response. And yet when we respond differently, when we respond humbly and respectfully, when we respond with a blessing for that person, that changes. That gets people asking, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why would you do that? And then we have this amazing opportunity to talk about, one, what Peter is teaching us this morning, what Jesus taught him, how Jesus changes our lives and makes us different people. Okay, so let's keep moving. Then Peter writes this, he writes, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, any extra credit? You don't have to raise hands or anything, but does anybody know where he's quoting right now? Don't have to raise hands. Uh, he's actually quoting from Psalm 34. This passage right here, this, this whole part is a quotation of Psalm 34. It was a psalm that was attributed to David when David um, was running from Saul and he went to um, uh, Achish, um, one of the, the, um, uh, the kings, the Philistine kings, and he, uh, I think it was Achish, and, and they also called Abimelech. Uh, anyways, so um, they went to, uh, David went to him, and he had to act like he was crazy so they wouldn't kill him. And actually this psalm is attributed to that, to that moment in David's life. And it's interesting because the whole psalm is talking about God's protection for those who are righteous, for those who continue to do the right thing, even though bad things happen to them, ultimately God will vindicate them. An example of this comes from verse 19. This is sort of like a summary of the whole psalm. It says, A righteous person may have troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. Now this is just sort of like, this is the, there's a few different places in the psalm where it says something to this effect. You can imagine how powerful this is for a church or a group of churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, who are facing harassment from the culture around them. How powerful it is to hear that if you will keep doing the right thing, the Lord will deliver you. Ultimately, God will deliver you if you keep doing the right thing. So it's no wonder that Peter uh, quotes this psalm. And actually, um, I was reading uh, Professor Karen Jobes, her commentary on 1 Peter. I've uh, been relying on her help a lot uh, for this series. And she said, actually, she made this great point that actually throughout this whole letter, there are references to Psalm 34. This seems almost like Psalm 34 was sort of um, Peter's pocket guide to how to live ethically, how to treat people. So if you want to read Psalm 34 this week, that would be great. Um, So all this together is that the first part, um, so a couple weeks ago, and I'm really going to test your memory here, but a couple weeks before Christmas, um, we were talking about the household codes Remember, we're talking about slavery. Uh, slaves, submit to your master. And we're talking about husbands and wives um, submitting to one another. And we're talking about this, and this is sort of the household code. Well, this morning, Peter has expanded that. So now he's expanded it from the house to the church, saying how we treat one another with humility, suffering with one another, having the same mind, being compassionate and tenderhearted. So he's grown it to the church. He's kind of working out now from our relationship with God to our relationship in our house to our relationship in our church. 
Okay, but he's going to keep going. Uh, now Peter moves on to explain the next, um, how to respond to the world around us. And that's where most of the, the next couple weeks we're going to spend, about how do we respond to the world. So he says this, he says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Essentially, he's saying, if you keep doing good, you'll come out on top. God loves you, and you will come out on top. And I need to qualify that some more, and I'll get to that. So it's interesting because he started wondering, you know, what were the churches of Asia Minor, what were they facing? What sort of trouble, what sort of insults? What did they have to fear? And I want to be careful here because studying and, and New Testament scholars are thinking it probably wasn't full-on persecution at this point. So probably what they're saying, they probably, the Christians probably weren't uh, rounded up and thrown into coliseums or fed to animals. It's probably not that level of persecution. It's probably something more like harassment. Harassment for being Christians, for not fitting in, for not going with the flow. Um, to give an example, it's, um, actually again, Professor Jobs, she was lining this out. She looked through the, the letter and found some of the things that they were facing. One of them is in chapter 2, verse 12, they were facing false accusations. False accusations about who they are and what they believed. Also, too, in chapter 2, verse 15, it talked about ignorant or misinformed talk. Facing this too about people slandering them because they were Christian, making up stories. Like some people actually called Christians atheists because they wouldn't believe in all the other gods. They only they were only believing in one, so they called them atheists. The next one too is evil and insult. And in chapter uh, three, verse nine and four, verse fourteen, that they faced evil, just generally evil and insults from others. Chapter three, verse fourteen, they faced threats. And 3.16, malicious talk. So this is mostly people saying things to them, treating them away. Not so much, there's no mention of being arrested or being killed yet for their faith. So it's probably prior to that level of persecution. But the church was ostracized. They were pushed to the outside. They were marginalized in their community. One, because they wouldn't go along with a social structure. And we feel some of that today. There are people around us who, you know, they just don't have a good feeling about us because we won't go along with what they do. You know, like, you know, there's just some people who don't trust you at a party unless you're drunk with them. Or there's some people who, they just don't trust you uh, if your life seems to be too perfect. So because uh, Peter wouldn't go along, or sorry, the, the Christians wouldn't go along, they were kicked to the outside, they were marginalized. Not only that, but politically they faced trouble as well because in the Roman Empire, if you weren't for the Roman Empire, then you were against it. And because these Christians wouldn't worship Caesar, because they wouldn't just go along with what the empire said, they were viewed as subversives. They were viewed almost as traitors. You know, how can we have these people among us if they don't even worship Caesar? That was the thought of the culture around them. Not only that, but they were... Um, looked at maybe as also too as like holier than thou. That because they wouldn't engage the, in the debauchery of their culture of their day, people thought, well, these Christians, they sure are stuck up or they're so arrogant that they think they're too good to be a part of what we do. Then lastly too, that maybe they looked at Christians too as bringing bad fortune. Because in the ancient world, they, everybody had a belief. Um, everyone believed in something and most people believed actually in a pantheism of gods. They believed in, you know, if 
Roman gods, Greek gods, however many gods they needed to appease to get life to work for them. And because Christians wouldn't uh, worship these gods, sometimes they would blame Christians. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago about husbands and wives. Sometimes husbands would blame their wives if their wives became Christian. They would blame their wives for misfortune of their family because they were following Jesus rather than worshiping gods like the Roman gods that they were worshiping. And so you can take that from a family and write it over a whole culture that a city might say, you know, we are facing famine or drought because of the Christians because they won't worship the gods. They insist on worshiping this Jesus of Nazareth. So they're facing social pressure all over. Okay. So because this then, um, Peter says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And I wanted to say this because if they're suffering these things, and they're doing good, Peter says that they are blessed. This is, this is good for us to hear. This is a truth that we often don't think about and maybe even have a hard time believing because we think when things are hard and we are suffering, we think, man, I would describe myself in a lot of ways, but blessed is not one of them. And yet Peter reminds us of the truth that when we suffer for doing good, we are blessed. And I think, like, you know, to break that down, one is that not that we might feel blessed, but actually that we are, that God is pleased with us, and that is a blessing. When we are doing the right thing, God is pleased with us. And I think when it costs us, when we do the right thing, despite all the ramifications, all the negative uh, feedback we get, I think God is pleased with that. I know with my own sons, when I know when they do the right thing, I'm proud of them. But when they do the right thing and all their friends tease them or they have to face all sorts of ridicule for doing it, I'm especially proud of them because that's when it's hard to do the right thing, when you face pressure to do the wrong thing. And so I think, one, they are blessed because God is pleased with them. But not only that, but also because God is a God of justice. And God brings justice. When we do the right thing and we get uh, bad consequences because of it, I think God is just and ultimately he will make things right if not in this life, then the next. This also fits with Jesus' teaching. Again, just to show you that, oh, sorry, to show you that, that Peter is not just making this stuff up. He's actually teaching the things that Jesus taught him. If you remember in the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught this same thing. When you face persecutions for doing the right thing, you are blessed. It really shapes our understanding of suffering, especially if we continue to do the right thing. Not only that, do we, not only do we have Jesus teaching, but we have Jesus as an example. He was the ultimate example of doing the right thing and how God blessed him. I mean, he suffered sacrifice, uh, insults, he suffered torture, crucifixion, but ultimately resurrection and ascension to God's right hand. He is the most blessed of all humanity. So we get this realization that when we do the right thing and we face uh, suffering for it, we are blessed. And then Peter says this. Sorry, he says, uh, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And then he says, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may actually be ashamed of their slander. He's saying to the churches in Asia Minor, he's saying, be ready to explain. Ready to explain this hope that you have because, and I think this is pretty smart, 
When you don't respond, when you don't return insult with another insult, people are going to begin to wonder. When you actually, someone treats you badly and someone is watching and you actually replay, you actually repay their insult with a blessing, people are going to ask you, why did you do that? That's not how the world works. The world works like this. When someone insults you, you get them back double so they never do it again and so that you get repayment, so that you retaliate. That's the way the broken world works. And when we don't live that way, people are going to ask us, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing what everybody does? And so he's saying um, um, that we do this, that we... um, Respond um, respectfully. So when people look at us and wonder why we're doing it, then when we aren't patronizing, we aren't arrogant, well, I follow Jesus, and if you knew anything about that, then you would know that this is why, you know, don't respond like that. (laughs) But respond with gentleness and humility. Speak honestly. Christ has changed my life. Jesus taught us again and again to respond with a blessing. When others insult us or hurt us, to bless them, to respond like that. And he says, keep a clear conscience. Keep a clear conscience, not only for our sake, because when people mistreat us, years later when we look back on it, we won't feel any guilt if we respond well. There are things that have happened in my life where I feel like I got the short end of the stick. And I look back at the way that I responded, and I am grateful I don't feel like I'm not ashamed of anything that I did or maybe a few things, but my point is that I don't look back at it and I don't say, man, I really wish I would have done that differently. I feel like I did my best. And so I hear Peter calling us to keep a clear conscience because it's one thing if bad things happen. That's pretty horrible. But it's even worse when bad things happen and we look back at it and we feel guilt because we did it badly, because we responded with insults, because we responded with retaliation, that feels even worse. And then Peter calls us to this. See, Peter calls us to this new type of living, this new birth into a living hope, a kind of response. That's what he's calling us to. Not just to join in this tit for tat, this, um, you know, retaliate because that's the way the world does it. So he's not calling us, he's calling us away from that extreme, which is how people typically handle it. And he's not saying just run away and start your own little society off in the woods somewhere. He's not saying retreat. He's saying stay in the middle. Stay engaged. Do it respectfully and graciously so that when people mistreat you that they are actually ashamed of mistreating you. But do it this way. Care for people. Be humble and gentle. This changes people's thought about Jesus. Then this thing, then last, Peter says this. He says, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And his point is, if, you know, if you're going to suffer, it might as well be for doing the right thing. Suffering is a part of life. Unfortunately, suffering is even a part of faith. But he says, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's not, for doing so, not because of something you've done. And I wanted to say this to you because this is a bit of a hang-up for some people, they, you know, if it is God's will. There's a lot of teaching today, and I just want to take just a real quick aside here. There's a lot of teaching today that says, if you are following God faithfully, you will never suffer. And if you're suffering, then maybe you're not following God faithfully. That sort of syllogism, that sort of line of thinking. 
as I read the Gospels, as I read Peter this whole last few months, that is farthest from the truth. Actually, the whole book of Peter is trying to encourage Christians that even though you suffer, actually you might be suffering because you're doing things right. We live in a world right now, and it's, you know, a lot of people talk about like, in terms of health and wealth gospel, that this sort of teaching runs contrary to the whole scripture. I mean, it's true. I think God wants good things for us. There's definitely passages that speak that. Absolutely. But I think more than good things for us, God wants us to be holy. I was thinking about that, that <clears throat> actually, I was thinking about it this week, this book, um, End of the Spear. This is written by Steve Saint. It's about a group of five missionaries who went to Ecuador. Uh, one of them was Jim Elliott. Um, he, uh, he went there, he was one of the leaders, and they were all killed. They were called to go to Ecuador. Uh, they felt God's call in their life. And I was reading one of his quotes. He said, you know, the church in North America seems pretty well fed. I think we feel, we feel called to go to places where they have not heard the gospel yet. And so they went to this tribe called the Huarani uh, in Ecuador, and they were killed, all five of them. They had families, children. They left their families and children to go spread the good news, to teach others about Jesus, and they were killed by the people they were trying to help. Now, you can look at this and have all sorts of questions. You know, like, If your thought is God never wants bad things to happen to us, or God would never call us to sacrifice for his kingdom, then stories like that just don't make sense. But if you realize that God has a will, that God wants things even bigger than our happiness, it fits. And what I mean by that is that um, God's desire, God's will is not to make life safe for us. God's desire is not to make us safe, but to make us holy. And the hard truth is that we grow in holiness a whole lot better when we're going through difficult things, when we're following God through difficulty. That grows us so much better than when things are easy. And so I just wanted to say that. If you have more questions about that, we can talk some more. But um, that Peter says this, it's better to suffer. If you're going to suffer at all, it's better to suffer for doing good. So to keep doing this... Um, so we keep doing good even when we're harassed for it. And I was thinking about this. Peter, you know, so he's talked about the, the church. He moved from the family to the church. And now this last bit, he's been talking about how we as a church are light in our community. How we as a church treat people in our community to be light here. So that people see the way we treat one another and the way we treat them. And that brings light to our whole community here that people begin to realize and ask us questions so that we are prepared to tell them about the hope that we have. Okay, here's the last section. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He has put to death in the body. Uh, he was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Essentially, Peter is saying here that by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his ascension, we should follow his way. Because Jesus has done this, we should follow him. Even if we have to die because of faith, even if we have to die because we're faithful, I mean, we are a long ways from that in our culture today. Maybe we face some discomfort or some harassment, but we are, none of us are being arrested for being Christians. None of us are being put to death for being Christians. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where that is their lot. That's the, that's the, the ramifications they face for a public profession of Jesus. And so, even if we were to face that, Ultimately, we are brought to God by Jesus. 
Now I want to take this, this is a long section here, but I'm moving pretty quickly over it for one main reason is because a couple of the, uh, in the commentary I was reading said that this is actually one of the toughest passages in the New Testament. One, because of the Greek, the grammar, and the ambiguities of it, but also two, because of some of the allusions here that are complicated to understand. Um, so he says this, he says, through whom, so through Jesus, whom also we went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, there's different theories about what Peter's actually talking about, what he's alluding to here. Some think it's maybe, um, like, obviously the story of Noah in the Old Testament. Some think maybe it's actually a reference to First Enoch, which also has a reference to Noah and some more elaboration on that. But the point I want us to get from this is that it, baptism, it, baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. Not that baptism saves us, but it, through it, because of Jesus' resurrection, we are saved. Let me make that clear. Baptism does not magically save you. That's not what we're saying. That's not what Peter's saying. But he's saying it's an important part of our faith, and it's actually through the resurrection of Jesus that we are saved. And then he says this, Jesus, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand, who is ascended and also reigns with God's right hand. Because Jesus is exalted, we ultimately have victory in him, regardless of what happens to us, regardless of how bad it gets here, if we will keep doing good, even if that means ultimately that we are killed for it, death has no hold over us in Christ. We have life eternal in him. Because of Jesus' victory, we have victory. Ultimately, nothing happens to us. Ultimately, we survive. So, He's saying all this um, about this, but also that because Jesus has done all this, one, he's brought us to God. He saves us through his resurrection. He, we have victory in his ascension. Because all of, all of this, Peter is saying, keep doing good. Even when it's hard, even when people don't appreciate it, even when people insult you because of it, keep doing good. Keep doing good in our church, the way he was explaining to us to treat one another here but also keep doing good by the way that we treat others in the community around us. So Peter has given us this roadmap, this, this path of faith, of following God, living for God even when it's hard. And I was looking at these guys, these men and women hiking up this trail. You know, it's, it's difficult to even see a trail there, and you can see that the way is hard, the rocks, the packs. It's not easy. But Peter is giving us a way this morning. I want to say this too, that um, that we're careful that we don't throw around the world, throw around the word persecution lightly. Okay, there are people, there are brothers and sisters, Christians who are truly persecuted. And I get a little hesitant when we use that word about our experience here. I think it's good for us to honor those who really are persecuted by not using that word for our situation. We, I would say, we are not persecuted. I think it's true, we are harassed. We are harassed because we are Christians, but we are not persecuted and that we honor those who truly are, who are facing death and imprisonment, that we honor them by saying, by reserving that word for their experience, for the, what they are facing. And it's true that in our community, Christianity is often looked down on. Sometimes it's seen as oppressive or the religion of the establishment. 
I was thinking about a story I actually told you again. Um, one of my professors, he talked about when his, his grandpa was a pastor, and they would go, and he would go to a car lot, and the guy who owned the car lot was a part of the church and just said, Pastor, pick out a, pick out a car, and we'll figure it out. Like, we don't live in a time like that anymore. Or where people would say, you'd say, well, I know you go to the church. I know you're an honorable person, so I trust you. If anything, people look at us now and they wonder, like, why, like what's wrong with us? But today, um, I feel like we're trying to show people that following Jesus actually changes us, makes us better people. But we also have to live that out. We have to return insults with blessing. We have to be gentle. We have to be humble, treat people well, even when they don't treat us well. And I hear Peter saying that he's instructing his churches, that Peter instructing those churches is also instructing us. Not persecution uh, that we're facing, but actually marginalization. And I want to be careful too that, you know, there's a real temptation in our culture right now to claim that we are victims. And I have this belief, I just, I think when we say we are a victim, we abdicate our dignity as people. We say that things um, things have happened to us. And I, I want to be careful, and I mean specifically here us as Christians, that we don't claim that, as, that we don't claim that we're victims because actually we're blessed. So that we're careful the way we talk about this as well. So it doesn't sound like we're complaining or whining because that actually works the opposite. That actually reduces our honor, or actually reduces honor towards Christ. When it looks like we're complaining or whining because of the way we're treated, people don't respect that. And actually, it's not good for us either. So when we accept this role as Christians, as Christians, if we accept the idea that we are victims, we lose a whole lot more. And so for us to keep <clears throat> saying that we are blessed, to speak honestly about ways that we are mistreated, that's fine. Because there are things that people do to us because we are Christians or think about us that are unfair and untrue. That's just a fact but that we never complain about it. We never try to say that somehow we've been victimized by it. This morning I was thinking about some about us as a church this whole last week, that we, imagine if we were to act the way that Peter is calling us to act, to care for each other as family, to love each other with brotherly type love, family love, to be here for one another. When one of us are insulted by a member in our church that we speak with them, but that we return insults with blessing. And then when you expand that to the culture around us, that we treat others around us who aren't Christians better than they had ever imagined. That no matter what they say or do to us, we continue to be gentle and humble. We continue to be respectful of them. We continue to bless them. These are the sort of things that change people's mind about Jesus, that bring honor to God. I'm thinking about this week, about how the word of God still speaks to our lives today how valid, how important, how timely this teaching is. Even though Peter spoke it 2,000 years ago to a church, to to a group of churches in Asia Minor, how the Holy Spirit applies it to us today and still speaks truth to us today. This is the good word, that we keep doing good despite the trouble it causes. Live for God. Amen.